Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Tyler Whitcomb, if we haven't had the privilege of meeting. Um, but uh, we are back in our series called Family Identity, where for the last handful of weeks, we have been going through the book of James. And uh, as I've shared, James is not interested in drawing you into a classroom to, to you know, okay, here's Christianity 101. No, he's talking to an audience that, he already has an assumption, knows the fundamentals of the faith. Well, like he goes as far as to say, hey, there are those of you who say, well, I intellectually, I can make that assent to say, I believe that there's a God. And James says, great, the demons believe that. Doesn't mean a whole lot. He's not so much interested um, in your ability to pass, you know, Christianity 101 survey he says, okay, I think you guys have already gone that way. I think you've already graduated. You got your certificate. He says, but now I'm really interested in how this lives out in your life. And so he's really talking practicum. He's talking practicality. Hey, what does faith look like? And so that's why we're talking identity, that there's an identity that we take on as believers. And so James says, really, when you come and say, hey, I believe the gospel, I trust the gospel, I've received salvation in Jesus, James says there's this surgery that takes place, this transformative work. And so, so far, he's been giving us the where we need surgery, right? He says it's going to, it's, your faith changes the way you handle suffering. He, he says when, you, when you're going through the valley, when you're walking through doubts and fears, he says, hey, you begin realizing that God is shaping you, that the circumstances that happen in your life really are God's provision. He wants to make you a certain way. He wants you to become a certain person, and we're all becoming something. That's a podcast, uh, becoming something. I'd recommend it. But um, we, are, we all really are becoming something, and he, he's saying, God's trying to do a work, and so you, you don't see suffering as God's punishment. You see suffering as a way that God is making you like Jesus. And it's this really beautiful picture. And, and then he goes and he says, but, but not only does that surgery take place in how you feel difficult circumstances, but he says, it also changes how you deal with difficult people, right? So you, so you go through your life, and this person might be a pain in your you-know-where. You and he says, but are you going to show them love? Are you going to show them mercy? Are you going to show them grace? Because he says, hey, if you have received that grace from Jesus, because, hey, you were once an enemy of God, but God, in his love, has lavished grace and mercy on you in the person of Jesus. So he says, if you have received that grace and mercy, that should be the overflow into your life. This is how you should treat people. And so that, there's that kind of surgery that takes place. But, but then he says, not only does it change the way you see people, but he says it, it fundamentally changes your value system, like what you value in the world. And he says, and, 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 and what you value will be seen in your works. And he goes on to talk about good works, right? He, he, he says a, a faith that, that is not visible is a faith that has kept you blind and unchanged. He says a, a faith that uh, is not seen doesn't save, right? It's just that intellectual ascent. It's just this, okay, I, I have a faith that says I know, but, it, but if the Holy Spirit's not changing you, James says you have no reason to think that you're a Christian. And those are really strong words, and they're not mine, and that's why I love preaching from the Bible, from the book, because if somebody has a complaint, they can say, hey, you shouldn't have said that. That was harsh. Going from the Bible here, and this is... God's wisdom, and so uh, if you have an issue, maybe we can take it up with God together um, and begin wrestling through Scripture together. But, but ultimately, J James says, hey, th this is so much more beautiful th than just something to know, but it's something to live, and it blesses the world. Like the church should be a blessing to the world, and, and um, that, that was really my challenge when I, I was at a camp a few weeks ago. That was my challenge to the whole camp was, was hey, does, um, does revival need to come to the church? Like, like, if we're not a blessing in the world, then we should evaluate what is it that we're doing. Are, are we really the embodiment of grace and truth, right? We, we can't sacrifice grace. You can't sacrifice truth. Those, those come together, and it's a really beautiful picture to the world. And that picture is Jesus, right? Where, where the, the, the Apostle John said that the the law of the, the, the Old Testament law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. 
So we don't sacrifice one for the other. It's a picture of both. And so, so James says, hey, if we're, if, we're, if we're not a blessing, then you should question whether or not this is real faith. You should question or not you're really following Jesus like maybe you are saying you are. Um, and so this week as we're picking up, James is actually almost taking a pause where he's not saying, hey, let's talk about more surgery that needs to take place. Hey, let's, let's, he's not saying, hey, let's go to, into a classroom and, and do some more instruction. In fact, today, it's almost like performance evaluation. Anybody like their performance evaluation every year that they got to do at work? You, you look forward to that day where you get to sit down and your boss says, okay, let's, let's see how you've been performing. Um, that's, that's what kind of James is doing here. Um, but thankfully, he has to operate out of grace. So it's okay if you've been falling short or, or not uh, living up to par. Um, because I, I think oftentimes when you look at the, the book of James and you hear James talking about a, a faith that's visible, a faith that changes you, the, the question is, okay, well, I can recall back to a time where, where I prayed a prayer and I signed a card and I said, I'm following Jesus now. And then I didn't change the next day. Like, life was still the same the next day. I, I, I hope that that's not only my experience. Anybody else experienced that? Where, where, where life felt, still felt similar after following Jesus? Like, you still had struggles and you still had doubts and you still had fears? Like, so is James saying that when you become a Christian that that outward change looks like perfection? No, that's not what James at all is saying. If you can actually recall last week, James is saying, hey, you know, um, the, the surgery that needs to take place is from your tongue, your mouth, the speech that you use. And he says, honestly, this is like the last thing that becomes like Jesus. Right? Like, like if you, he's like, if you never speak death, if you never speak, if your mouth never gets you in trouble, he says, you're perfect, you've arrived, go get your gold medal. And all of us can probably attest, like, hey, we probably said things this last week. We wish we didn't, and, it, you know, it happened and whatever. Maybe you said it to the people that matter most to you. Maybe you, you said it to a child. Maybe you said it to your spouse. Maybe you said it to someone. And you could just, like, you, the moment it came out, you're like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. James is saying, hey, this is the Christian life. Like, yes, it needs to progress. Yes, it needs to become better. He goes, but this is like the untamable beast, um, and so he, he, he does, as he's talking about the, the tongue being one of the last things that gets sanctified, what that tells us is that God is in this, this process of you becoming like Jesus. He's in it for the long game, right? He's not looking to just hit a hole in one with you and like you just magically, you know, you drop all your bad habits and you just have a perfect life. Like, like James understands, the Bible is understanding that that there is a process, and it, sometimes it's slower than any of us would like it to be, right? We wish we would just arrive to this spiritual maturity where, we, where our alarm goes off at four, and we wake up, and the Bible's already open, and, and thankfully, we don't even have to read it because we have it memorized, right? Like, we, we hope that that's where we're at. But generally, most of us, all of us, that, that's not where we are. And you don't need to feel shame about that. You don't need to feel guilty the Bible gives you that, that flexibility to know and understand and really just trust that God's working in his timing and in his way, and, and ultimately so that we do become more like Jesus. I think about the, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 where, you know, this is a guy who, who saw the miracles of God. He saw churches planted like he, he got to touch people with a handkerchief and see them get healed. And he, at the, near the end of his life, as he's an old man, says, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? Right? I, I mean, it's this real tension of, of what I know to be right and true and what I live out in my everyday life. He says, there's this gap, this tension, where I still struggle. And I'm the Apostle Paul. Somebody give me a better resume. Somebody tell me about more churches that you've planted. You, you can't. I mean, this is the guy that that from, from a lot of us would look at and say, he's a, a hero of the faith, a, a person to model our lives after. And he says, at the end of his life, I still struggle. Life is still hard. And I don't always do what I want to do. In fact, the very evil that I do, I hate. And, and so um, James, in the middle of this, this surgery, he pauses and says, hey, let's just do some performance evaluation. Let's just see for, for how, we're, how we're doing. And, and he, he says that there's evidence um, in how we live. 
He's like, you want to see how you're really performing? Well, well, let's examine. Because maybe up to this point, he's supposing his audience is like, yeah, of course we're supposed to love people like Jesus loved them. Like, like of course that I'm supposed to, my, my tongue should speak life and not death. Like, like, of course. And so James is like, okay, you think you have a grasp on this. He's like, let's just, let's prove it. Let's, let's look at the course of your life. And so what James does is he, he pulls out this, this um, any board game fans in here? That was one of the struggles when I got married to my wife. We had to talk upfront and honest. I hate board games. She loves them. Like, I don't like doing them. The, the extent of board games for me stops at shoots and ladders. Like, uh, you know, the toll ticket to ride, the uh, Catan, is that the other one, the big one? That, those games are like four hours long. I'd rather watch Harry Potter. Uh, some of you are like, you better not. That's witchcraft. Um, but James pulls out the board game Life. Anybody ever play that game? Right? And, and, and throughout that game, you have this series of choices, and they lead you to an outcome. Every choice you make sends you somewhere. And James is like, okay, pause. Pause where you're at. Don't move again. Okay, where you're at now, you should be able to look back and you'll be able to see what wisdom you followed up until this point. You'll see what wisdom you're following based on where you're at right now. It seems pretty self-explanatory, but that's what he does. He says, hey, okay, where, prove it. Look at your life. What wisdom have you been following? The, the book of James is full of wisdom. So we should be able to examine our lives and know what kind of wisdom we have followed. I believe that's a slide. We should be able to examine our lives and know what kind of wisdom we have followed. And, and essentially, in our five verses, six verses that we have this morning, James is going to say that the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of heaven are polar opposites. They will take you to two drastically different places. Right? And so he's like, it, it shouldn't be a hard barometer for us to find out what wisdom we're following. And so... Um, I want to take a moment to illustrate worldly wisdom. I'm going to do, th do so through a movie, um, a clip. Um, so if we can cue that clip up, I, I think it's a silly movie, but I promise it it's probably one of the greatest films ever created. Let's hit it. Who's jumping at those sandwiches first? <laughs> so that's Napoleon Dynamite. Anybody ever seen that? Like, give it up if you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, people. Um, so, like I said, a couple weeks ago, I was at this camp. I was speaking to young adults while I was there, and um, I came to a very sad understanding when I said, I actually quoted from Napoleon Dynamite, and no one knew what I was talking about. Like, that was a tall tale sign for me. I'm getting old. Because I was like, that is a classic. What do you mean? And then it came out in 2004. So, that was 19 years ago now. So, you know, a lot of young adults probably haven't even seen that golden classic, Turner classic film, right? Uh, but 
That, that's Napoleon Dynamite. And if you, if you miss that scene, because it, it kind of cuts in, in, in the scenes, but Napoleon shows up and he has got to, the, the job of the day is they have to move 8,000 chicken hens from cage to cage. And they're saying they're probably going to be disruptive. They're going to give you a challenge. And if you do, you just got to get strong with them. And then Napoleon's response is, do the chickens have large talents? <laughs> What'd you say, boy? And, and so you have this really hard task, like moving 8,000 chickens in a desert on a chicken farm with dis, disgruntled chickens. And the outcome, what Napoleon got was he got fly-ridden sandwiches, egg yolk drink, and $6 in change. It's like a dollar an hour. And I don't think any of us would look at what he did and what he got and say, that's a fair trade-off. Right? Like, the, the amount of effort you exerted and what you got, like, that doesn't add up. And James is going to say, that's exactly what worldly wisdom does. Like, worldly wisdom is going to ask you to exert a lot. It's going to ask you to pay a lot. And at the end, what you get back, the compensation you receive, he says, it's not a fair trade-off. Right? He, he says, I, mean, I, I see that you, you've, you've chased after this dream and this vision, and you got it. And he says, but at the end, what you had to spend to get there, based on worldly wisdom, he would say, that's not a fair trade-off. You know, I know I've met some, some wealthy people that who... At the end of their life, they got to their dream, they got to their utopia, they got to what they envisioned, and when they got there, they said, it cost me relationships, it cost me with my spouse and my kids, and, and that's not everyone, and wealth isn't bad. Like, like don't ever hear me say that, that's not what I'm, what I'm saying, but if, 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 if gaining this utopia and gaining this status and this position and this vision that you have, he says, if it costs you these things, he's saying, you know, your, the relationships that are most important in your life, he said, that's not a, a fair trade-off. And I want to make this point, though. From the world's perspective, if there is no afterlife, if there is no heaven, then this makes perfect sense. Uh, like this idea of obtain all that you can, get yours at any cost, any expense, like that makes sense to an unbelieving world. The, the apostle Paul says this, he says, if I fought with the beasts at Ephesus, like if I went to Ephesus and I experienced all that suffering that I did, and he said, and the dead in Christ aren't raised, essentially he's saying there's no afterlife. He said, if there's no afterlife, there's no heaven, and this, this wasn't real. He, he said, then, then, then we should be pitied. He's like, man, then the world's got it right that we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Like he said, the world's wisdom, that, they, it makes sense. Like if you don't think there's something after, why not live this life to the fullest of getting yours? That, that, that makes sense to the unbelieving world. But, but for those who, you know, follow Jesus, that, that would say, hey, we have heavenly wisdom, we look at that and say, that, that, that doesn't make sense. And, and, be, and we might be quick to say that, but I think the world is quick to say that about us, right? Like if you're really following heavenly principles and heavenly wisdom, the, the world might look at that and say, really? That, that's what you're giving your energy to? That's what you're giving your time to? Like, you're going to forgive them? You're going to love those who hate you and persecute you? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? The Apostle Paul writes this, actually. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Um, I believe that is also a slide. Um, he says that the gospel is foolishness to the unbelieving world. And for those who are perishing, they look at the gospel, they see the way the gospel influences Christians, they say, that's foolish. Paul understands that, that the world could look on at the church and say, that doesn't make sense. And so what, what, what Paul just said, what James is going to say in our text today, this is, a, this is another slide, um, people following Jesus should be living lives that don't make sense to unbelievers. Well, like if you're truly embodying, you know, the embodiment of, of heavenly wisdom, he says, your life from the outside perspective to the unbelieving world should not add up. You're living and operating in faith. That's what James just got done saying. And so um, our big idea for this morning, um, if, you, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. The wisdom you follow influences the life you live. 
and it reveals whom or what you worship. The wisdom that you follow is evidenced in your life, seen, seen all over. Because it's one thing to say, oh, yes, I follow this wisdom, right? It's, a, it's one thing to intellectually say, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. But true evidence is, is an action, right? You, you, you could go home and you could watch some documentary that says McDonald's is bad for you. McDonald's is poison. But if you're going through the drive-thru, getting a large diet, because they have amazing large Diet Coke, um, not that I would know. Um, and the French fry and the, the cheese that will be evidence of what you actually think about that food. Right? Because if somebody handed you a jar of poison and said, that's poison, that'll kill you, you'd probably, most of us would be like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. But maybe you watch What the Health, and they tell you what McDonald's really is, and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, whoo, you know, the golden arches. Um, I love what Jim Gaffigan says. He's like, a lot of people lie about McDonald's. He goes, but they sell like six billion burgers a day. So he goes, People that say they don't go, um, they're probably lying because the math doesn't add up. But James lets us know that the wisdom we follow influences the life we live and it reveals whom or what we worship. And so James chapter 3, starting verse 13, he writes this. He says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. And so James thinks, hey, you, you, you think that you followed this wisdom. He says, prove it. But notice what he says. He doesn't say, prove it by showing us how many verses that you can say in your prayer. He, he, he doesn't say, you know, prove it by the, the Christian jargon you use in everyday language. He said, don't, you don't prove it by your social media. He says, you prove it in everyday actions. And he's actually going to get to the point where he says, you're going to prove it by how you treat people, how you love people. Um... But James says, you're going to see it by the life you live, the good works. And, and I want to be careful. Don't see good works as a prerequisite for salvation. It's not prerequisites. It's the overflow. Right? It's proof. It's not a requirement. To, to be loved by Jesus it doesn't require you to do good works, but it is the proof by which you know that you love Jesus. Right? And so um, he says that this good works will be seen in humility. Humility. Like, like your, your, your good works are evidence in your humility. Well, what does he mean by humility? What is, what is biblical humility? Because I think this word humility in our culture, in our context, you know, at times has a skewed definition, right? Where it can be, okay, well, if, I, if in order for me to be humble, then I just can't think about myself ever, right? Or, or maybe humility then is, okay, um, you know, this person just matters so much more than I do, and so that's humility. Well, that is not biblical humility. Um, th- this biblical humility, this word humility, can actually also be translated as gentleness. And that will give us a, a understanding for what biblical humility is. So I wanna, want you to see something where um, how you uh, treat um, Dishware could be evidence of this, right? Like if your family has china, you know, fine china that you, you know, probably, you know, when, when somebody of honor comes over, you know, you're, you're busting out the china. Or maybe for you, like, it's just a display thing. You know, how many people really ever use their china? But it's there, it's in a mantle, it's out in, you know, we have china in case the president comes by for dinner. Um, 2024 is coming. Um, so, I, uh, when you think about that fine china, though, if you were to use it, uh, chances are um, you're, you're going to do it on very rare occasion. You're going to do it for very rare people, and you're going to clean it, and you're going to handle it very gently. Again, Jim Gaffigan, one of the greatest comedians of our day, he says that fine china really has to be cleaned in distilled water, and dried with kittens, um, right? That, that's how we kind of view fine china. Um, but that gentleness that you, that you have towards your fine china isn't that you think that that china's worth more than you are. 
It's just that you view it that it matters. Like it independently on its own, it matters. And that's what James says, biblical humility. That's what he's getting at when he says this idea of humility is not that people just matter more than you. It's that they matter. Right? You think about how Jesus really was the embodiment of humility. In Philippians 2, Paul says that, that he took on this humility. He became a slave for you and I, laying down, laying down his life. But I, I don't know if, if the Father up there in heaven is looking down at people and Jesus and going, yeah, people matter more. No, it's that they matter, and he's willing to pay by sending his one and only son, Jesus. And so, so do, would we really, like Jesus, as he demonstrates that we matter so much so that he would lay down his life, do we embody that kind of humility that we see people and we say independently they matter? So our good works are seen in how that we treat people, right? How you treat your spouse. Do, do, do you show your spouse that they matter? Do, do you show your kids that they matter? Do you, do you show the person that's serving you lunch later that they matter? Do you, do you show the person at your work that's cleaning the toilets that they matter? J- James says that, that that's that kind of humility that ought to be expressed from this wisdom. Like, like if you have gained this heavenly wisdom, if you really say that, that I get it, he says, okay, show people that they matter. Prove it. How, how, do, how do we treat people? And for some of us, we might say, okay, well, um, I, can, I, I, I see this idea, and maybe I don't treat everyone like they matter, but there are some people I do. You know, like when, when our CEO is walking through the building, like, you know, I tuck my shirt in, and I make sure, like, everything's looking proper, and I make sure that they know, that I know that they matter. But James, throughout the, the, this book, as he's teaching us what real Christianity is, he says that's not how we measure value. Value isn't measured in how you treat the CEO, but it's how you treat the janitor. Right? He, he, he says it's, it's the, uh, the widow and the orphan. It's those that can't do anything for you. Are you willing to show those people that they matter? And James says that's what the gospel does to us. That's the wisdom it influences us to do, that, that, that we would be these kinds of people, showing them that they matter regardless of if they got their act together, regardless of the life that they're living, do we, do, do we show them that they matter? Um, a friend of mine and a fellow pastor, uh, Craig McGlasson, he says this. He says, we need to do, you and I, we, we need to do a much better job. Uh, I think we have this as a slide. He says, you and I, we need to do a much better job to celebrate, uh, celebrating the, the God's work in people even if we see that they still have a lot of work to be done in them. Like, we would be those kinds of people that are just ready to speak life into people and showing that all peoples, all lives matter. And I know years ago that, that was really viewed as a, a political statement, but that is a biblical reality, that all lives matter. We, we can't get away from this as the people of the book. This book tells me all lives matter, all people matter. And so, um, what if from today forward, that's what this church was known for, that as somebody would walk through the doors, that, that our immediate response as a body, not just pastors, not just people that are leading us in worship, but like you, individually, sitting in that seat, that you saw people coming through those doors and say, they matter. I want to express love. I want to be able to serve them. Hey, can I grab you a coffee? You know, I, I'm willing to, to lay on the big bucks and go to Hebrews Cafe and get you the, the, the espresso latte. Because that's biblical humility. That the gospel shapes us that way. It shapes us to see people that way. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36, um, where, where he says, hey, if you just love people because they love you, he goes, you're, you're no different than the rest of the world. Like, pagans do that. Like, you come out of the womb loving people, loving you. He said, but what if you loved those who persecuted you? Um, And again, this was the way of Jesus, that Jesus would demonstrate his love for us, not in that while we were worshiping him, not that while we were memorizing Bible verses, 
but that while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. He showed us value, our value, and that not while we were perfect, but while we were struggling. And so maybe the struggle for you is, hey, I, I hear this. I hear that the gospel humility is supposed to influence the way I treat people, even, even those that can do nothing for me. And like I hear that, and the gap for me is not intellectual because I can't, okay, I understand that the gospel ought to make me treat people this way. He says, maybe the gap isn't intellectual, but the gap is practicality. And then James is going to go on and say, well, there's another kind of wisdom that maybe has influenced how you live. And it's the wisdom of a world. And, and the struggle and the reality is that we are around this kind of wisdom all the time. You know, in almost every domain of society, the, 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 we will see the, the world's wisdom as James lays out for us in verses 14 through 16. He says this, But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. And so, um, James James says such wisdom is demonic, right? He, he, he's going to say that, um, that it's not from a wisdom that devalues people is a wisdom that, that, that doesn't work, um, right? He says, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, then, um, then these are going to be some of the descriptors that we're going to see from this kind of wisdom. Like, like, like this, uh, this is there, this is the life it's going to produce, and he says, the life that it produces, this is what it is. He says, it's earthly. You know what that means? It's not from heaven. Then he says, it's unspiritual, which means it's not from God. You know, John chapter 4 says that, that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, in fact, he says, this kind of wisdom is demonic. And he says, this, this wisdom, it finds its, its vitality or it gets birthed in bitter jealousy. So, so, so what does he mean by bitter jealousy? You know, because isn't jealousy in and of itself bitter? Um, he, he's communicating an idea here. So let's just talk about bitterness for a second. Um, here's how I define bitterness. We have, we have it as a slide. Bitterness is the result of a past hurt finding life in a present frustration. Right? So, so what bitterness is not, it's not that, hey, someone comes and they slander you and you slander them back. I'm not saying that's what you should do, but that, I'm also saying that's not what bitterness is. Bitterness is where someone has offended you, someone has hurt you, and from there forward, that's now how you see them. That's how you identify them. And so from now on, that's just how there's no reconciliation. And you now have placed their mistake as their identity, and you treat them as such. That, that would be bitterness. Um, and sometimes that frustration, it's warranted, right? Where, where, where you, you're frustrated from that moment because at that moment, they gave you a promise. They said, hey, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to do this for you. And they didn't do it, and it left you high and dry. And so that, that, that frustration's real, and it's warranted, and it's okay. But James would say, if from there forward, now you've just held that onto them, he said, that's a problem. He said, that, that, that's what I'm talking about with, with, with bitterness, where, where you've identified somebody or you, you've placed some external reality onto them as their identity. And so... Um, that frustration at times is warranted, but bitterness can also come from things that are unwarranted. And it come, can come from ways where, where people didn't personally do something to you. And, and so this is, I think, where James is really going with it. He, he says it's a bitterness that comes from not what they've done to you, but what they have. Insert the jealousy. Right? Where, where he says, hey, um, where you now look at somebody and maybe they have you know, the job you have, they have the financial security they, that you want. They, maybe they have the house that you say, oh, gosh, if my house could just be like theirs, like it's like designed by Chip and Joanna, right? Like, like they have the house that I, that, that that's supposed to be mine, right? And you start looking at the external reality of someone else's life and the bitterness that you start having towards them is 
is they have what I want, and I'll do anything to possess that. Right? So it's this, this jealousy where you start looking at somebody, and now you look at them through a lens, not because of what they've done to you, but what they have. And James says that that bitter jealousy always, always, always gives way to selfish ambition. Right? Where, where, where this idea of selfish ambition is, okay, I'm going to get that at any and all costs. And we have to be careful because ambition in and of itself is not bad. Like for parents in the room, like if, if your kid, you know, is getting up there in years and you start seeing that they are just finding comfortability in the basement, there's going to be a problem there. Right? You're going to say, hey, let's maybe sit down and talk about your ambition and drive. Like what are the, the goals you're chasing in life? Because the goals that you're chasing in life aren't living in the basement forever. Right? Like he's, ambition in and of itself is not bad, but the fact is he uses two English words. He says selfish and ambition. He puts them together. The Greeks just have one word for, for this idea. But, but James, the best way that he could describe it was selfish ambition. And, and really what the Greek word meant there um, was that we would seek our well-being, our own welfare at the, uh, uh, at the expense of others. Right, Because maybe you're looking around at the prettiness of everybody else's life and you say, okay, well, in order for me to get that house and I have to have this job and I'm going to climb this ladder and I'm going to get there at any and all costs. Well, again, if you have a desire to have a position like that, that's not a bad thing. But he's like, if you're willing to stomp on people to get there, that's the problem. And that's the way of the world. Like, like you, the way of the world is you need to get yours, you need to, you know, accomplish it at any and all costs, and, and that might be at the expense of your marriage. That might be at the expense of the relationship with your kids. That might be at the expense of, of the most personal relationships to you. And, and, and from us, we, we look and say, well, okay, yeah, obviously that, that, that would be a red flag. But, but James is talking about such a drive and such an ambition that, that, that that's not so much like, oh, yeah, let me... You know, it's, it's not that I see that it's destroying my relationship with my spouse. It's not that I see it's destroying the relationship I have with my kids. It's that I don't care if it is or it isn't. And I'll get there if I have to. And you know what James says about that kind of wisdom? You know what James says about that, uh, that, that kind of attitude? He says that it's demonic. It's a, it's a, it's a wisdom that, that will crush people. And he says, don't brag about that. You see that in, in, in our text? In ver, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse um, 14, but if you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, he says, don't cover up the truth with boasting or lying. And, and, and so most of us would say, well, well, who would boast about operating life that way? Who would boast about our culture does? Right? Our, 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 our culture, you know, the, the mantras of our culture, I'm going to say some things, and you may you know, say, well, maybe I've heard, probably will say I've heard uh, some of those utterances within our culture and context. But it's, um, you have to look out for number one, because if you don't, who will? Right? I, I mean, if you're at work and you're trying to climb that corporate ladder, is the, the mindset that's been instilled in you this idea that, that, that it's all about me, not about my coworkers, it's all about me, and I got to get mine, and because if I don't think about me, who else is going to, right? That, that's, some of, we use words in our culture like the self-made man and the self-made woman, but we don't ask our question about how those people got made, right? Where, where we would say, hey, um, you know, I got to where I needed to go. We don't ask who they had to step over to do that. Or even, you know, this one is a popular one, but sometimes it takes a, a few eggs to be cracked to, to make an omelet. Who are the eggs? What are the eggs? And so James, seeing a wisdom that does not value people, he says what that will do was, he says inevitably the outcome there will be that there's disorder and evil of all kinds. Where if that's the mantra or that's the attitude that, that I'm going to get mine at the expense of 
my marriage, at the expense of my kids, at the expense of what matters most, you're going to see disorder. You're going to have dysfunction. Um, I think it was Joseph. I don't remember if I was talking to you or if it was somebody else. Um, but there was a conversation where uh, it was about being a partner at a, one of these big financial firms. And the advice of some set of partners said, oh, yeah, you know, this is the route or this is how you get there. Um, but what it will inevitably cost you is a marriage or two. Right? 100-hour weeks, that costs something. Someone else is paying for that. At what expense are you willing to get that? You know, I mean, at the end of, the, at the end of your life, is it going to be that, hey, yes, I obtained the, the, the 5,000 square foot house, or I obtained the vehicles, or I obtained the trips, the, the security, but, but at the end, you know, if it cost me this, and again, I've never said wealth is bad or that this is the only way to get there, but if that was the route and you sacrificed everything to get this and you died alone, was it worth it? Or if you had your spouse bedside, your kids in the room, what really matters? And so heavenly wisdom tells us people over position. Worldly wisdom tells us position over people. And James says that's demonic. The moment you start putting other things over what matters most. And it's the devil's scheme. It's the devil's scheme to get us lost, to get us in this rat race. Like this is, James is talking this 2,000 years ago. And really the, the culture of our day we still find ourselves in these struggles, in these battles. And so, um, a wisdom that devalues people is a wisdom, um, it's a wisdom that hurts people and leaves us with spending more than what we wanted to. Um, this kind of wisdom leaves us sitting at a table counting out our change and saying, that's six bucks. That's almost like a dollar an hour. Because no one would look back at that wisdom and say, that was the fair trade-off. No, no, one, no, one, no one in their right mind looks at that wisdom and thinks, that's what I want. Right? If we could, if we could sit back and see it for what it really is. So James says, the world's wisdom asks you to spend more than a product's worth. Um. Now, James says, okay, well, then what's the alternate? Like, like if this is the wisdom that consumes so many, like, like people get out of my way because I'm chasing my dream, well, then, then, what, then what should we follow? Well, James reinforces heavenly wisdom. And so really what you saw was James opened up with heavenly wisdom, right? He said that we, it shows us that people matter. And then he critiques worldly wisdom. And then he comes back to heavenly wisdom. I've taken one speech class in my life, but that's what we call sandwich. You know, the, the way to critique somebody is you start off with what's good and what's right. You critique, that's kind of the bulk, and then you come back to what's good and what's right. And so he says, here's real wisdom that you want to give your life to. People matter. Don't, don't, don't sacrifice that. But the world's going to tell you that you're number one, that your dreams matter most, and sacrifice anything to get that. James would say, don't do that. At the end, here's, here's what James is going to say. Here's what we can, here's the wisdom that we can live our lives by, verses 17 and 18. But, but the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism, and it is always sincere. I look at those descriptors, and Man, that, that sounds awesome. Like, if you could really live that way, that would be amazing. That it's pure, that it's right, that it's gentle, and, and it's willing to admit when I'm, when I'm wrong. You know, it's willing to submit to others, to yield to others and say, okay, maybe you know something I don't. Maybe I shouldn't see you as an enemy. But, but as someone that I've been called to love and to serve and to, I don't always have to be right. Um, so the thing that I want to show us, though, the, the thing that I think all-encompassing 
what that we should pursue, the kind of wisdom we should pursue is actually verse 18. He says this, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. What should we pursue above everything else? What should wisdom produce in us? He says, a desire to have peace with others. Now, that doesn't mean that we um, abandon truth. Again, I said that at the very beginning. Like, like, our message to the world is grace and truth. Like, you don't get to abandon one of those things. Because that wouldn't be a reflection of really what Jesus embodied. But, do I have to be right? Do I have to make this person say, uncle, in order for, for me to, to desire unity and peace with them? Like, he says, like, Yes, you, your, your spouse might hurt you at some time. At some point in your life, my guess is your spouse is going to do that to you. Probably this week. Nobody say amen to that. Um, your kids at some point might frustrate you. Your boss might frustrate you. Oh, there's a, a celestial amount of relationships that you possess that, that really matter in this life. James is going to say, earnestly desire peace. Peacemakers who sow seeds of peace reap a harvest of righteousness. He's like, when you're desiring peace with people, when you're desiring peace with the relationships that really matter, he's like, you're going to live the life that you want. He's going to say, you're going to experience the good life when there is peace amongst these relationships that matter most. Right? That's that's what he's really getting at. That, that's the wisdom that we ought to pursue, that, that we ought to have. And so my question is, like, like, when you spent it all, you know, the 85, 90 years that you have in this life, you know, if, if that, when you spent it all, what do you want to be able to look back on and say, this is how I spent it? How do you want to be able to say, this is how I spent my life? You know, the, this time here on earth, but like, how, how do you want it spent? Well, the wisdom, you know, it's kind of your financial advisor. There's the world, and there's heavenly wisdom. And they're both going to tell you to pursue meaning and purpose and value in life. They're going to tell you exactly how to do it, but they're going to tell you how to do it differently. Again, they, they couldn't be more different. This says that my relationship with God, my relationship with others matter most. And this is going to be wisdom that tells you that you matter most. And this is something that, yes, the church has historically stood on. This church has historically believed. And even now, you know, some of our psychologists, some of our philosophers are looking at the data. You know, um, a famous one, Jordan Peterson, but I saw him on this video. He, he said, and the more you value yourself, the more life is all about you, the more miserable you will be. But that's Satan's game plan. You, 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 you. And you have immense value. Don't ever hear me say that you don't. So precious are you that the Son of God would spill his blood that you might be reconciled to God. You are not valueless. But if your gaze is so focused on you, the more miserable you will be. But this heavenly wisdom cause us to set our gaze to this celestial city and see life is bigger than these 70, 80 years of acquiring stuff. And that you could actually deposit into people and these deposits will last longer, so much longer than this, this life ever will. That, that your marriage can produce a specific fruit in you that you can enjoy for all of eternity. The way you parent your kids can produce a fruit in you that will long, last much longer than this life and you can enjoy it for eternity. What matters most, I think it's the things that are going to last forever. So are you going to put your deposit there? Are you going to show that love to people? Are you going to spend your life pursuing peace by demonstrating love? Uh, Francis Chan, pastor and author, he says this. He says, we are here to love and not much else matters. And some people hear that go, oh, the truth matters. It does. It really does. But we're here to love. 
it was the late Billy Graham that said it's God's job to judge, Jesus' job to save, and I've just been called to love people. Would that be our mantra? Would that be the wisdom that we live our lives by? And if you're here today and say, hey, I want that wisdom. I want to be able to experience that kind of peace and that kind of joy and that kind of life. Um, it first starts, first and foremost, that the peace that you can have with God. And the scriptures tell us that that sin entered into our world and it disrupted that peace. Right? The, the, the Bible, you know, God created the world and everything in it and he said it was all good and good and good. And he's like, yeah, this is awesome. Mankind in my image. Mankind sins against the holy God. And, and this, um, this shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, it's a perfect peace got fractured in that very moment. And man and God had a chasm so great that not enough life, given a hundred lifetimes to do over and over, you couldn't acquire enough good works to get yourself back to God. And, and, and this is one of the distinctions of Christianity in all other major world religions. Where so many other major world religions say you better work your way back to God, that, that he's on this mountain. But Christianity says that the mountain is insurmountable and that God in love send Jesus down so that we might be able to get up. That we could be reconciled to God. And so Jesus came and he died the death you and I deserve because of the sin in our lives. But he didn't say dead. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death in our lives so that we might be able to be reconciled to God. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And the scriptures say that he would clothe us in righteousness, a righteousness that's not our own, but that's been purchased for us by Jesus. And so that now I, we don't stand before God as guilty, but as justified. Declared not guilty. We've been given access to God in heaven for eternity. And so today, today, you could be fully, freely, forever forgiven because of Jesus. And it's through confession and repentance. It's an honest cry to the Lord that, Lord, you have my life. I'm going to follow you in obedience. And I'm going to live on a wisdom that's not what the world tells me to do, that it's not all about me, but that, God, it would be about knowing you, loving you, and loving others. All of the laws and the commandments in the Bible can be summarized in those two realities. What does it look like to, to follow Jesus? Loving God and loving others. That's it. That would be the expression of, of faith in Jesus. And so let's pray.